0: And I'm going to read Romans 1, Romans 8, 1 through 8, as we set our hearts uh, to the task of allowing God to use His Word to shape us to be like Jesus. I'm going to read Romans 8, 1 through 8. Our sermon this morning is Romans 8, 1 through 13, uh, but we'll just read the first eight verses to start before our time of prayer. Here's what the Word says in Romans 8, 1 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, "...but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God... For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.1. Is there a more loved verse in the Bible? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of the Apostle Paul's uh, most poetic words in Scripture probably only exceeded by Philippians 2.5-11 in my view. Uh, Just Paul all of a sudden just writes this and you say where how is how is this possible that words this Powerful and this amazing could occur in human language And of course it's only by the holy spirit that regardless of where we are in our walk with christ Regardless of whether you have been saved two minutes two years two decades two millennia I don't know i'm giving you the benefit of the doubt There is now therefore no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If your worst sins came before your salvation, there is no condemnation. If your worst sins came after your salvation, there is now therefore no condemnation. If your sins are on accident, nobody's buying it, but (laughs) there is now therefore no condemnation. If your sins are on purpose, planned for and saved up for, scheduled on your Outlook calendar on purpose, there is therefore now no condemnation. If your sin was five seconds ago, how much condemnation? No condemnation. If your sin was five years ago, there is now no condemnation. If you are still paying the consequences for your sin, you still bear the scars, the financial uh Fallout, the relational brokenness, if you still carry the realities that sin ruins things, there is no condemnation. And that's where this verse fits. And if there is a verse designed to energize the Christian life, it is this verse. And we ought to do well to pay attention to it. And we recognize that. What we're going to see in this passage is there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is not designed to make us feel good. It does do that. It is designed to remind us where the power to live a life for Christ comes from. power to live is from God. That's where this verse is taking us. The power to live is from God. Here's the whole outline. I'd like to give you the outline at the beginning so if you decide to leave, you can. Power to live is from God. Verses 1 through 8. God did what we could not do, so we could do what we could not do. There is now no condemnation, because God, uh, the power to live is from God, so God did what we could not do, so that we could do what we could not do. Verses 1 through 8. Power to live is from God. God did what we could not do. We love hero stories. The hero swoops in. To save the day, usually a helpless victim is being harmed by the bad guy. We watched a hero story yesterday. This is off script. This is going to get me in trouble. Somebody will send me an email. Flora and Ulysses on Disney Plus, who's watched it? Ulysses is a squirrel with superpowers. It's not even a joke. This is a good film. The bad guy, animal control, of course. Ulysses saves the day. It has a happy ending. I cried a little, but I made it sound like I was laughing. You know how that is. We love hero stories, even when the hero is a, a squirrel. With, if you're pulling that up on your phone right now, that's fine. Go for it. Hero story. We love that the hero saves the day from the bad guy, and and and, and we have a victim that ought to be saved. And and the Bible is a hero story with with a with a bad script in our mind. Because the hero swoops in to save the bad guy. He doesn't swoop in to save the victim. The hero swoops in to save the bad guy, the bad guy who's still kind of bad. And he decides to make the bad guy good. Now, sometimes this happens in our stories, but but usually the bad guy retains sort of this uh, evil streak, and at the end of the day, he's just a bad guy. In the the narrative of the scripture, the good guy, Jesus, comes in to save the bad guy from being a bad guy by taking all of his evil deeds on himself. This is a hero story that's not matched anywhere, often imitated, but never properly done. The good guy saves the bad guy. When the bad guy doesn't want to be saved, doesn't deserve to be saved, and if we knew what the bad guy was really like, we wouldn't be sympathetic to him. We would say he ought not to be saved. The culmination of redemptive history, the culmination of God beginning his redemptive work. When did God start that? The, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God made them clothes from animals. What happened to those animals? They're dead. Someone must die for your sin. Immediately we see this in Genesis. The culmination of a history throughout human history from Genesis. To the Gospels is the culmination of that is God finally just doing what we could not do, which is pay for sin for us by dying for us. Look at verses 1-4 through 4 of Romans 8. I've said Romans 8-1 about 10 times. I'm going to say it again. It's so fun. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of, of the Spirit of life has set you free... In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the law of the spirit of life? That is this. That Jesus died on the cross. Fulfilling the law. Took it to the cross. Paid for sin through the shedding of his blood. And overcoming death by rising from the dead. So the law of the spirit is this. If you trust Jesus. The law doesn't apply. Your sin is washed away. You will be raised from the dead and live forever. That's the law. If you are in Christ, you are righteous and you will one day be raised. What is the law of sin and death? We've been talking about this at length in Romans. It is a list of do this and don't do this. And if you break it even once, you have broken it and you will die. What does the law do for us? It shows us what sin is because as soon as we know what a rule is, we break it and we die. So the law of the Spirit, that is Jesus saving us, has done what the law could not do, provided righteousness and life. Middle of verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit in jesus we are not condemned because jesus fulfilled the law we could not fulfill jesus did everything god required he never did anything god forbids more than that not only did jesus never succumb to temptation and Jesus never sinned, Jesus did exactly what the Father wanted, exactly when the Father wanted. On the off chance you and I are obedient, we're usually obedient late. And if you're a parent, when you ask your child to clean your room, when are you expecting that to be done? When I'm done with my game. right? When the song is over, I'm tired. We've all heard this. See, this is how we are. We don't mind being obedient. We just want to be obedient when we feel like being obedient, which is precisely never. So here's the thing. Jesus never disobeyed. And when he obeyed, he obeyed exactly when the Father wanted obedience to occur. He fulfilled the law completely his last moments on the cross drinking from hyssop some sour wine in order that scripture might be fulfilled all the way through his life making sure everything was handled exactly right and he took those righteous requirements of the law to the cross with them fully fulfilled died on the cross and it was all handled and then he rises from the dead three days, days later overcoming sin and death all in one fell swoop complete and total victory so in Jesus, we aren't condemned because there's nothing left to condemn us. When we trust that what Jesus did uh, fulfills the law for us and washes away our sin, there is no longer a condemning authority in our life. The law no longer has authority. If the law comes to you and says, you need to do me to be righteous, you need to obey what I say to be righteous... The answer is the law only applies to people who haven't died, and I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me, and last time I checked, Christ fulfilled the law. So, law, thank you for your advice. See ya. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. It is a completed act, and this act of Christ was initiated by God. It was enabled by God. And the goal of this act was not that we would feel good. The goal of this act is at the end of verse 4. Look what it says. I'm going to read verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, listen, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The goal of the law being fulfilled in us is not merely that we would feel good Although I would hope we would feel good that we don't have condemnation The goal is In this life in this body of flesh, we would no longer walk by the flesh, but instead We would walk by the spirit. That's the goal. There is no condemnation so that what we would walk by the spirit That's the entire goal the goal is that we would no longer seek to please the flesh, but rather we would seek by faith in the finished work of Christ to walk according to his spirit. Now we see this word all the time in scripture. See this word walk. Uh, see it a lot in Paul's epistle. You see it in Ephesians, you see it in Galatians. The idea of walking here is this. When we believe that Christ has uh, redeemed us, it is a finished work. He has when he said on the cross it is finished. He wasn't kidding. We are made fully righteous. We are like Christ Excuse me But now we live this life according to that reality and that day in and day out Christ has saved me is our walk So the question is not what do I have to do to make God forgive me? The question is having been forgiven. How then should I live? And those those two ways of looking at life are that that's an important distinction A lot of Christians have lived their Christian life trying to impress God so that he wouldn't be mean to them If I am good enough, God will give me lots of money if I am good enough uh, God won't give me a sickness if I am good enough My kids won't have bad things happen to them. And so I'm going to live my life trying to impress God so that he won't be mean to me or that he might be nice to me and that's a way of earning our salvation but the Bible is saying, no, 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 it's different. Having been forgiven, having our sin walked away, knowing fully there is now therefore no condemnation, how then should I live knowing this is a finished reality? What does Sunday afternoon look like if there's no condemnation? Does that mean I pursue the uh, desires of the flesh or having been made righteous and been delivered of condemnation, do I live my life walking by the Spirit? Because the goal Of our salvation is the glory of God lived out uh, in us by his spirit. All right, let's read again verses 5 through 8. Do you mind? We're going to do it. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What is to walk by the Spirit? It is to set our mind on the things of the Spirit and not the things of our fleshly desires and appetites. We talked about that at length last week, so we're not going to develop it again. If you've forgotten what your fleshly appetites are, you can jump on YouTube and watch last week's message. So what is walked by the Spirit? To set our mind and our heart on the things of the Spirit in opposition to the things of the flesh. And the reason we do that is because we have a desire to please God. So let's start in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here's the thing we need to recognize about being in Christ. And I don't know if this is new information for you. probably isn't. But we need to think about our relationship with God in different terms than we are used to Most Christians or professing Christians or most religious people Assume that the role of Christianity or the role of religion in their life is to uh, Make God favorable towards them Now if you have been raised or been a part of a gospel-believing church for a long time You know immediately, no, that's not right Jesus is pleased with me because of his work on the cross However, The default human position is to try and impress God so he'll do what I want. And so this is always a fight for us, even if we've got good theology. The question is, what ought to motivate, what ought to motivate my desire today to walk by the Spirit? And it's verse 8. A desire to please God. A desire to please God. All right, I'm going to try and irritate you a little bit and you're saying, what have you been doing for the last 10 minutes? Okay, trying to do it worse, I guess. Why get saved? And might I suggest something over the last 50 years has been a popular reason not to get saved. This is a good reason not to get saved, a popular reason not to get saved, but not a comprehensive reason not to get saved. When I was a young person, you would go to a crusade, sometimes it would be a tent, sometimes it would be a building, sometimes it would be a public school gym. You would go for a number of meetings, and it always culminated with a guy getting up, yammering on and on, usually very exciting, usually a lot of shouting, usually the buses are told they're not gonna be leaving. If you've been to a Billy Graham, that's one of his lines. Okay. But at some point you're told there is only one way to avoid the fires of hell. There's only one way. And if you don't want to burn in hell for eternity, you need to find Jesus. Let me be very clear on this. If you reject Christ, you will burn in hell for eternity. So we're not talking about the reality of that statement. The Bible is quite clear. There is only one other subject Jesus talks about more than hell in the Gospels, and it's money. I don't know how we ever got an audience. Here's the thing. If you're getting saved to avoid hell, you're missing the point. Did you know that? The reason to get saved is you find God. God. If the only reason to get saved is to avoid hell, you've completely missed the point. Being in heaven, the joy of being in heaven is not the fact that you've avoided a fiery eternity. The joy of being in heaven is that's where God is and that's who we want to be with. And if our Christian life is defined by the avoidance of judgment, we will never truly understand the sweetness of what it means to be a Christian. The joy of being a believer is God lives in us. And he is with us. And he wants to no longer call us servants, but to call us friends. And he no longer wants to call us lost, but those who have been found. And he, he wants to consider us brothers of Christ, a royal priesthood. The joy of finding Christ is finding God himself. And what motivates the Christian life more than anything else is the power of the Spirit making us realize God is amazing. And I, what does it look like for me today to do stuff that makes him happy if I can say it that way that's not even right but you get what I'm saying a life of being walking by the Spirit is not to avoid Jesus or God smacking us upside the head because we blew it again it's a life of saying what does it look like today to do things in such a way that God might be pleased he's already pleased with me but what are the things that that God is into what are some things God is into this isn't hard is is God into forgiveness I think so. He sent his son. I think he's into that. Do you think God would be uh, tickled pink if you forgave somebody today? Oh, now it's getting rude. What else is God into? Putting other first. Look at that. He put us first as sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What if we put somebody first today that doesn't deserve it? Pro tip, none of them deserve it. What if we serve somebody today and we're never going to get repaid? What if we were kind to somebody and nobody's ever going to see? What if today, instead of relying on our skills and our competencies and all our awesomeness and our resources, what if today we fell on our knees and said, God, I'm an arrogant son of a gun. I can't do it without you. And I have been convinced I can. Without you, I am dead. Without you, I am broke. And all that I have is nothing compared to the glory of knowing you. Would he be pleased with us, verbally at least recognizing that the only thing we have in our life that truly matters is a relationship with God forever? What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? A mind on the things of the Spirit. What is God into? And I want to be into those things. What if I'm not into those things? What if there are things that God's like that I'm not into? God's into prayer. Notice Jesus prayed all the time. God's into prayer. I'm not into prayer. It's boring and it makes me sleepy. I think God's also into repentance. That's what's amazing. When you find out that there's something in your life, and there's a whole bunch of some things that you don't like, that God likes, you go to him in repentance. God, I've noticed, I read your Bible, and I look at my own heart. I'm not like this. I have no idea what to do about it. Is God delighted by that? Of course he is. That humble recognition that we don't line up to what Jesus is like, and he will be faithful to work in us. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Look again at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh, that means define our reality by our appetites, set their minds on the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is, define the reality of our identity. Who am I and what am I about? Is it defined by Jesus or my appetites? Those are the two ways to have our life or identity defined. We can define as those who pursue our appetites or those who... Uh, Set our minds on we are in Christ To set our minds on the flesh is death and this is what he is arguing He is saying That without the spirit our mind is going to be set on our flesh Now having the spirit we have the ability by the power of God to set our mind on the things of the spirit But we know as Christians that's always going to be intention, isn't it? There's always going to be the fight of the flesh, and we talked about that a lot in Romans chapter 7. What he is not saying is that Christians no longer struggle with sin, but what he is saying is believers, we will take the time because we want to please God to say, you know what, I want my mind to be set on who I am in Christ and the desires of the Spirit, not on the desires of the flesh. Why would we as believers want to set our mind on things that are hostile toward God? Well, we are weak and we're not home yet. But the Holy Spirit gives us the power to say no to those things and set our minds on the work of the Spirit. All right, this goes without saying, but here's what I want to draw us to. The power to live is from God. God did what we could not do, that is, give us His Holy Spirit and fulfill the law for us. But here's what we must recognize about the gospel, that God saves sinful sinners by sending His Son to die on the cross and be raised from the dead, that by faith we could receive righteousness and one day be raised from the dead. The gospel is not, I can get away with sin. The gospel is, sin doesn't condemn me. But if your notion of the gospel is, I can get away with sin, you have missed the point of the gospel. God did not save us so we could be uh, uh, better behaved sinners. God saved us so that the condemnation would be gone. And now we have the Holy Spirit residing in us so we can, by God's grace, live a life of righteousness and not of the flesh. Now, we all still sin in many ways. But His Holy Spirit gives us the power to say no to sin. And when we do sin, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to repent and trust that He forgives us. There's two aims of no condemnation. Here are the two aims of no condemnation. Number one, joyous rest in what God has done for us. That is one aim of no condemnation. I see a number of you in here I know struggle with some pretty serious sins. I won't say your name out loud. There is joyous rest for you. And I'm serious. We struggle with sin. And we struggle with sin in many ways. And for many of us, there is significant shame and guilt that happens as a result of that. And the Bible is quite clear. There's no condemnation in Christ. You're not condemned. But there is a second aim of no condemnation that he has given us so much that we would have in us a deep desire motivated by the spirit to want to please God. That's the other aim of no condemnation. If you stop it, just okay, I can feel good that a sinner like me has been forgiven. You haven't taken it far enough. No condemnation is to communicate to our heart and soul. This God is amazing. He is worth dedicating our lives to pleasing him. That will never be a waste of time. It will never be a poor investment. The question we have to ask ourselves, if the gospel has moved in our heart, do I want to please God just because I'm his son or his daughter and I want him to be delighted? When we read, there is therefore now no condemnation, the Bible is driving us to say, Lord, let me be a pleasing aroma. We're going to get to it in Romans 12.1. Let my life be a living sacrifice that pleases you. A pleasing aroma to God. The power to live is God. God did what we could not do. So there's a little bit of a tension here, and we say, sure, I want to please God, but How? I seem to have so much trouble doing what God wants, right? Anybody? Oh, yeah, sure. I want to please God, but it turns out that's that's kind of hard. So the power to live is from God. He did what we could not do, so we could do what we could not do. Let me read Romans 8, 9 through 13. You however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hero stories. Back on that. Hero comes in, saves the day. And most hero stories, what happens? The hero flies in or rides in on a horse or comes in on a train, I don't know. Saves the day. And then what does the hero do at all the end of these kind of movies? They ride off into the sunset. And then you wake up the next day. Wait, the hero's gone? What are we supposed to do now? My favorite one of this is a, a, a hero in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe named Captain Marvel. I don't understand this lady. Fantastic hero, basically indestructible and can kill anybody, right? I mean, besides Thanos, we can argue about that all day long. Saves the day at the end of one of the million movies they made, and then leaves. And like, where are you going? Like, the problems aren't like totally fixed. It still is Planet Earth. Like, And our answer was, well, there's lots of other worlds that need saving. Oh, so you have lots of skill, but it's, it, it's only in one place at one time? That's not helpful. So now what you're telling us is our problems aren't actually that significant. I don't know if you've looked at the world, Captain Marvel. We could use a hand. But some other world in some far-flung universe... I'll tell you what, Captain Marvel. You tell us their problems, we'll decide whose problems are worse. And you stay here, basically, is where we're at. What what good is a hero that sort of fixes things and kind of keeps it from exploding, but then leaves and has to keep coming back? You know what? You're a lame hero. I'm not, you know, it's not just Captain Marvel. It's all of them, you know. Why do heroes have to wear jammies? I don't, why can't you just wear a pair of jeans? I don't, whatever. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. Probably not the spirit. All right. <laughs> here, what do we discover here? Jesus said it in John. If I don't go away, the, the paraclete, the counselor can't come. Here's what Jesus doesn't write off in the sunset. He stays. When he said, I will never leave you, I will not forsake you, he was serious. Notice how these, uh, this passage is worded. This is an incredible passage for some theological reasons that we're not going to get into. But look what he says. Verse 9. The spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit of who? God. So the Spirit and the Father are one. The Spirit and the Father are one. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, so who else is the Spirit one with? Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When the, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, which every ble- believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you are indwelled by God. The Spirit of Christ is in you. The Spirit of God is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. What did Jesus tell Philip when he told, when Philip said, uh, Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. What was Jesus' response? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What are you talking about, man? How long have I been with you? You guys are dense. That's in the Greek. If it's not in your English version, that's how it reads. So this is what we're saying. The power to live is from God. We can do what we could not do because Jesus didn't leave. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father dwells within us. We can now do what we could not do because the Holy Spirit is in us, giving us the power to do what we cannot do, which is live our life in holiness to bring great delight before God. Verses 9 and 10, all believers have the Spirit. He says it in the negative. If you don't have the Spirit in you, well, you don't belong to Him. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you've been a believer two minutes, how much of the Spirit do you have? The whole thing. If you've been a believer two decades, how much of the Spirit do you have? The whole thing. If you've been a believer two minutes, and you're standing next to a believer been a believer two decades, who has more? None. You both have the Spirit. Pay attention to this in the Old Testament if you wanted to go in and talk to God What did you have to be the high priest? How often could you do that once a year? What did you have to do kill a bunch of animals and take their blood with you tie a rope around your leg? Unless you did a, in case you did it wrong so we can drag your corpse out Now because of Christ the the new believer two minutes in I need Jesus save me from my sin You have the presence of the Holy Spirit in a more profound way than any high priest in Israel's history. That's pretty important. That's how big a deal what Jesus did on the cross is. That you can roll out of bed, say, I need Jesus today. You have the presence of God in you to his fullness. All believers have the Holy Spirit. From the moment of faith, our identity in Christ is always... The sons of God, the daughters of God, indwelt by His Holy Spirit, sealed until the day of redemption. We are, by nature, in Christ, spiritual. We are those defined by the reality of the Spirit in us. How powerful is that Spirit who is in you? Look at verse 11. It is the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. Now we understand from many verses the resurrection of Christ was done by Jesus. Hebrews, it says he is priest forever but by nature of his indestructible life. We know elsewhere, the Father says he was the one who raised the Jesus from the dead. And now we have the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. We might say it this way. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Father and the Son residing in you, the, has, has the power to raise Jesus from the dead is residing in you. I've said it this way, I'll remind you. It is hard to raise a person from the dead. How hard is it then to raise God from the dead? Let me tell you, really hard. The the Holy Spirit, who has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, resides in you. Verses 12 and 13. We're we're hurrying now because I went too long. I've said... 90% Ninety percent of this morning is not in my notes, so I'm sorry. The sermon I prepared didn't happen. So then, brothers, we're debtors, not to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you die, but if you live by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He is saying you're not condemned, you have the spirit. Who will you worship? Your flesh or the spirit? We are indebted to the spirit. We have, a, uh, we have an obligation to say the Holy Spirit resides in me and I want to be uh, moved to do the things of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit. Now, some of you are wondering, how do I know if I have the Spirit in me? Do I get a, a quiver in my liver? Do I, I don't know, what, it, what happens? Have you ever said no to sin? I mean, I mean, just tell me, just once you did? Right, just the one time? Here's the thing. Here's what we're doing. Well, I don't know if the spirit is in me. The reason you don't is because you're taking credit for too many things in your life. You roll out of bed and say, I ought to read my Bible. You think that was you? Something happened in your life. You say, you know what? I got I to gotta get on my knees. I need to ask for God's help. You think that was you? You think because you're a good religious person, you decided you need to pray about something? That wasn't you. The thing is, you're looking for, for the clouds to part and the sun to shine and to walk down the road and now, and walk on water and... And the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit is that you and I wake up in the morning and say, you know what, today I don't want to lose my temper. You know what, today I don't want to lust. I don't want to envy my neighbor. Today I want to be faithful and I want to serve others. You know what, today I want to be in the Word. You know what, today I'm going to turn the radio off in my car and spend more time praying. The problem is we think that's us. And then we wonder where the Spirit is. The one doing that is the Spirit. When you are moved to do the things of God, our first response would be, God, thank you for showing me what I need to do. I never would have thought of that. And I'm sorry that I thought it was me thinking of that. When else does the Holy Spirit talk? When fellow believers are talking to you. And when they're talking, some of them may be related to you and live in your house. In your mind, you're going, I don't need to hear this. And yet you got the Holy Spirit in in a fellow brother or sister telling you what you need to hear. We've decided it's not the Spirit. We've decided they're nagging us. Will we struggle? Will we sin? Will we fail? Yes. But there's no condemnation. Since there is no condemnation, let's say, what does it look like today to listen to the Spirit and please God? Three things. Number one. There's no condemnation. If you insist on feeling guilty about your sin, then you insist on helping God with your salvation and he doesn't need your help. You need to rest in the fact that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. You think you're being holy and righteous by carrying around shame and guilt. You're not. You're telling Jesus the cross wasn't quite enough and you need to feel bad about it. You don't. He died. He rose from the dead. We glory now in the fact that there is no condemnation. Augustine said it this way if you don't know who Augustine is he owns a coffee shop down the road The law was given that grace might be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled The law was given that we might say we need grace And grace was given that the law might be fulfilled in us The way to life in God is grace alone. You cannot earn God's favor if you are not in Christ. The only way to find God is to put your faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, the only way to have favor with God is already handled. So now the question is, since God has given you his favor, how then should we live? Christ became what we are, humans. So we could become what Christ is, righteous. So finally this, Christian, are you setting your mind on Christ or on your flesh? Are your hopes and dreams for fulfillment, satisfaction, designed and desired around the things of your appetites? Or are they things of Christ and his spirit? If they are the things of the flesh, which more than likely, if you're awake and alive today, they are, then God takes great delight in repentant believers. You say, how can I please God today? agree with him that we're pursuing our appetites and God, I I, I want to be over this.